Half Price Horror. Hello, and welcome to Half Price Horror, where we get our terror at a discount and pass the savings on to you. Half Price Horror is a spoiler-heavy podcast that takes a deep dive into scary movies curated by the selection at the local half-price bookstore. I'm your host, John, and today we'll be taking a look at Halloween 2 from 1981, written by John Carpenter and Deborah Hill, directed by Rick Rosenthal. As you might guess from that somewhat disharmonious pair of credits, this had something of a troubled production history. Of the original principals involved, Irwin Yablons and Mustafa Akkad definitely wanted a sequel as soon as possible, wanting to strike while the iron was hot, while Carpenter and Hill didn't think there was enough story to stretch into a second film. Carpenter had already moved on to lining up his next two films, in fact, The Fog and Escape from New York, which further drove a wedge between him and Yablons. But when it became clear that Akkad and Yablons had the right to launch a sequel whether Carpenter and Hill participated or not, the two of them decided that it would be better to be in than out. Especially because Carpenter and Hill both felt like they'd been denied some of the profits from the original that they were entitled to, they negotiated a rate to write the screenplay that was essentially a backdoor payment from the money they didn't get from making the first movie. To further complicate matters, Yablons was financing several pictures with his still somewhat cash-strapped fledgling production company, and sold his rights to Halloween 2 II and 3 to the infamous producer Dino De Laurentiis a larger-than-life individual who had a knack for crafting junk food movies aimed squarely at the lowest common denominator, and I say that with the greatest affection for his output. So now Yablons had no say over what was being done with the movie. After initially toying with the idea of picking up five years later with Laureate College, Carpenter and Hill wrote a screenplay that started immediately after the end of the first film. He wasn't satisfied with it, for reasons we'll get into later, and didn't want to direct it himself. He suggested giving the script to Tommy Lee Wallace, who'd done production design on the first movie, but Wallace didn't like the story and didn't like being in a position where he wouldn't be able to pull rank on the screenwriter and get the changes made to it that he wanted, because in this case, the screenwriter is also the producer. So it fell to Rick Rosenthal, who's since become a respected TV director, but who was at the time kind of a wet-behind-the-ears college kid, walking into a situation where everyone but him had power over the way the film was being shaped, and everyone including him had a different idea of what to do with it. And sure enough, the film was taken away from him after principal photography was completed and re-edited extensively by Carpenter, who also did three days of his own reshoots to add in the kind of scares and gore he thought a post-Friday the 13th slasher needed. All of this information, by the way, is developed at greater length in the books Taking Shape and Taking Shape 2 by Dustin McNeil and Travis Mullins. The result was a movie that nobody involved was happy with, but that nonetheless made ten times its budget at the box office. And that movie once again stars Jamie Lee Curtis as Laurie Strode. She'd had a busy couple of years since the first Halloween came out, appearing in The Fog, Prom Night, Terror Train, and Road Games, all of which earned her a reputation as the preeminent scream queen of the early 80s. But this was more or less her swan song in the genre. She moved on to comedies with 1983's Trading Places and didn't return to horror until 1998 and Halloween H2O, which we'll be covering later, Natch. Also returning is Donald Pleasance as Dr. Sam Loomis. This film features something of a beefed-up role for the character, which presages the trilogy of late 80s Halloween movies, and comes in the middle of a good stretch of work for the legendary character actor. 
He was in an adaptation of Dracula and one of All Quiet on the Western Front. He worked with Carpenter again for Escape from New York. He did a role in the cult classic The Monster Club, which is very different from The Monster Squad, mind you. And most importantly for MST3K fans, this was the era where he appeared as Cobras in the wonderfully cheesy superhero movie The Pume Man. Charles Cyphers also returns as Sheriff Brackett, although he leaves the film pretty quickly for reasons we'll get into as we go on. This was also a pretty good era for him. He practically hadn't gotten out of Carpenter's sight during this period, appearing in his TV movies Elvis and Someone's Watching Me, and in The Fog and Escape from New York. He also did some television work as well. And Nancy Stevens comes back as Marion Chambers, but her presence in the film amounts to little more than an exposition dump near the end. She had also done Escape from New York as well, between the two installments. Added to the cast for the second movie is Lance Guest as ambulance driver Jimmy. Guest was one of those young men like Bruce Campbell that everyone thought would develop into the next great male lead, but who instead found their groove as a character actor. Also like Campbell, he had some big parts in slightly jinxed productions, Jaws the Revenge and The Last Starfighter come to mind, and some smaller parts in genre shows like Jericho and The X-Files, and some weird TV movies like Stepsister from Planet Weird. His counterpart, Bud, is played by Leo Rossi. Rossi is a character actor who in 1981 very much gave off the vibe of a younger Harry Dean Stanton, and who, like Stanton, has kept busy with over a hundred credits in film and television. He specializes in mobsters, popping up in things like Gotti and Sinatra Club, and Mafioso, the father, the son. Then we have our four nurses who step in to fill out the body count in this movie. There are a lot more kills in this one in the previous film, in fact, just about double, uh, mainly because, as previously stated, the Friday the 13th movies had upped the death toll and Carpenter felt like he had to match their escalation of violence. So there's Gloria Gifford as Mrs. Alvis, who's also the first African-American character in the franchise. She does not survive the movie, unfortunately. Uh, she has been a perennial day player and character actor throughout the 80s, 90s, aughts, and teens, and in fact just recently had a part on Abbott Elementary. I know I say it a lot, but actors like Gifford really are the lifeblood of Hollywood, constantly hustling and auditioning and coming in and nailing some pretty thankless parts. We also have Tawny Moyer as Jill, who did some smaller parts in the 80s and 90s before retiring from acting. Anna Alicia as Janet, who had already popped up in some genre shows like Battlestar Galactica, Galactica 1980, and Buck Rogers in the 25th Century, and who went on to a very long stint as Samantha Ross on the series Falcon Crest, and Pamela Susan Shoup as Karen, who had also done Buck Rogers in Galactica 1980, as well as The Incredible Hulk, Hawaii Five-0, and Magnum P.I., and Night Gallery, and The Mod Squad, and Mannix, and Wonder Woman, and Empire of the Ants, and Gemini Man, two episodes of which were stitched together to create the MST3K episode Riding with Death, and basically she did a lot of work in television for a very long time. I'm always glad when someone like that gets a part like this that they can parlay into appearances on the convention circuit, because a lot of character actors don't see a ton of money on residuals even when they've done a lot of work. And finally, taking up the role of the shape this time out, we have stunt performer Dick Warlock, who is a legend in his own right. He got his start in the 60s doing stunts for westerns like Bat Masterson and The Legend of Jesse James, then began doubling for Kurt Russell in a show called The Travels of Jamie McFeeters. Look, 
Kurt Russell has some really weird early credits, okay? And he continued with that for 25 years as Russell's career progressed. That in turn connected him to a whole series of industry contacts, giving him stunt work in things like Kolchak the Night Stalker, Rollerball, Jaws, Escape to Witch Mountain, Dirty Mary Crazy Larry, Freaky Friday, The Dead Zone, Christine, and on and on and on. Well, I can't say definitively that he was the inspiration for Russell's portrayal of Stuntman Mike in Grindhouse, or for Tarantino's other film about a movie Stuntman Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, it wouldn't surprise me one little bit. The movie opens with a reprise of the events of the previous film, incongruously set to the tune of Mr. Sandman by the Cordettes. We're now a significant distance into the 1980s as we continue with this franchise, and one of the things that definitely distinguishes the 80s is a nostalgia for the 50s that mirrors the recent nostalgia the last decade had for the 1980s. It's why Jason was killed in 1957 in the original Friday the 13th. The whole greaser aesthetic was huge, singers like Frank Sinatra were back in vogue, classic 50s movies like Blob and Invaders from Mars, and yes, The Thing from Another World, all got remakes. It's why Back to the Future and the novel version of It both jump back and forth between the 50s and the 80s. The 50s was huge at this time. Happy Days was in. Everybody was doing 50s stuff. So while it's not a huge part of Halloween 2, although you do see some very nice classic 50s cars in the parking lot at the hospital, it absolutely makes sense that we get a 1954 classic as the opening song as we go back through the ending of Halloween. It is important to note that this is a reprise, not just a flashback. There's a lot of reused footage, but the sequence of Loomis shooting Michael is restaged, with some significant differences. This does create a continuity issue, because they kept the original footage of Loomis shooting Michael in the hallway, and then add a scene where the, he empties his gun into Michael, so we get a rare instance of a seven-shot six-shooter. But more importantly, Rosenthal goes with Carpenter's original idea of an astonished Loomis instead of a resigned one. Not only do his eyes widen in shock when Michael's body isn't there, he went off the balcony into the front yard in this version, not the back, but he actually goes out and puts his hand where the corpse lay as if to prove that Michael isn't there anymore. Loomis's hand comes away bloody, proving that he did hit his quarry, but the key fact remains the same. Michael is gone. Loomis tells the next-door neighbor to call the sheriff, and we proceed into the credits. Which are very similar to the previous films, albeit with a slightly different jack-o'-lantern, right up until the end. Then the pumpkin we've been zooming in on splits apart to reveal a skull that unfortunately looks a bit papier-mâché itself lurking inside it. I suppose you could say it's a bit on the nose to reveal the looming death lurking behind the playful traditions of the holiday, but hey, it's a cool and striking image. When we emerge from the credits, it's with a POV shot of Michael lurking in the alleyways and trying to find a place of sanctuary. One thing I do have to knock the movie for is that the use of POV for Michael seems less purposeful than it did in Carpenter's movie. Carpenter has that one opening shot of Michael's POV where you are seeing the effect of the violence, but not the individual causing it, before we get that tremendous reveal of the clown mask coming off and Michael's little kid. Here there's POV of Michael several times, and it always feels sort of random, like they just said, well, it's time to do POV of Michael now. Michael sees the police arrive, hears Loomis announce repeatedly, I shot him six times, in a state of almost flamboyant panic and then sneaks into a house to steal a carving knife from an elderly couple. He doesn't use it on them, though, instead going to their next-door neighbor and stabbing her to death with it. That would be kill number six of the franchise for Michael. 
This capricious murder was added in reshoots when it seemed like the film was dragging a bit near the beginning, and while it doesn't really fit in with any of the motivations later established for Michael, it very much fits in with the motiveless killer from the first film. We get our first look at Michael here as he stabs the teenage girl, and he does look a little odd. They used the same masks from the first movie, but not only did they age a little in storage over the intervening two years, but they fit differently on Dick Warlock than they did on Nick Castle, which changes the whole appearance of Michael's face. It takes some getting used to, to be honest. This is also where we see that the news is full of announcements about the three teens killed earlier that evening, which kind of muddles one of the character beats in this movie. Sheriff Brackett, whose daughter was babysitting Lindsay just across the street from the Doyle house, and who's been actively searching for the escaped spree killer all night long, doesn't seem to know that Annie's even in danger until much later, let alone that she's one of the three victims that police are talking about and that the media have been reporting on. Admittedly, they do say that the victims' names haven't been disclosed yet, but it's really strange that it never occurs to him to at least check on his kid and see if she's alright. Then again, Laurie's parents simply disappear from the movie after a scant mention or two and never show up on screen, save in the weird flashback we'll get to later. So maybe we're just supposed to intuit that the parents of Haddonfield have problems relating to their kids and tend to take a pretty hands-off approach. As the police take witness statements from people outside the Doyle residence, Lori is carted out on a stretcher. And I feel like I need to clarify something before I make this next statement, because otherwise the true weight of it won't come across. So yes, I am absolutely terrible at spotting wigs in movies. I watched the whole of the MCU never noticing that Scarlett Johansson wore a variety of wigs for her appearances as the Black Widow. I didn't realize that Annabelle Wallace was wearing a wig in Malignant, despite her hair being an actual plot point. And I didn't even spot the wig on Barbara in Night of the Living Dead, despite it being comically and infamously unrealistic. So when I say that Laurie is carted out wearing a hilariously unbelievable wig, I need you to understand that it's so hilariously unbelievable that even I thought it looked fake. Which, don't get me wrong, I understand why they needed to do it. The film is set the same night as the original, but two years of real time have gone by for Jamie Lee Curtis, and in that time she's discovered that a pixie cut really suits her. The wig is a necessity. It's just also very clearly not where the money went on this production. Laurie's taken to Haddonfield Memorial Hospital, where the biggest excitement of the night is a little boy who found a razor blade in his Halloween candy the hard way. And yes, that is one of those urban legends that isn't really true. But technically speaking, it's only true that kids have never been injured by getting doctored candy from strangers. There are reported incidents of kids being poisoned or injured by doctored candy provided by their own parents and snuck into their trick-or-treat baskets. Which means this mom should probably get a visit from Child Protective Services soon. Other than that, the place is dead quiet, and you get the feeling that on this night at least, the staff probably outnumbers the patients. Laurie's doctor, Dr. Mixter, who's been out celebrating the holiday while on call and is disturbingly tipsy, stitches her up. He is played, by the way, by veteran character actor Ford Rainey. He doesn't know her blood type or whether she's had a tetanus shot, and if I have a tiny quibble, it's that any doctor who recognizes a patient on site and by name should have records for that stuff, but again disturbingly tipsy. He sedates Lori despite her protests and begins treating her wounds. Loomis and Brackett, meanwhile, are out searching for Michael, and it's becoming increasingly clear that Brackett is getting fed up with Loomis. Not because of anything Loomis has or hasn't done, but simply because Brackett is feeling the whole situation spin out of control even before he finds out what happened to Annie, and he needs someone to take his frustrations out on. 
And Loomis, as the person most directly connected to Michael, makes a perfect scapegoat. There's at least two separate occasions in the movie where Brackett accuses Loomis of letting Michael out, which is not fair given that he does not run the facility where Michael is being kept, and in fact was warning them the whole time you need to keep a closer eye on him. Their search seems to pay off, though, as they see someone wearing a mask similar to Michael's and give chase. The person flees out into the road and is hit by a car, which plows him directly into the side of a van, which then explodes. It's all a bit aggressively staged. They clearly needed the characters to be uncertain whether or not Michael was the person who died, which meant that his body needed to be burned beyond recognition, and they sort of worked backwards to the stunt that could provide that outcome. But it's tremendously over the top compared to the rest of the movie, especially compared to the first act of the movie, which is trying to re-escalate the violence back in rising tension. And it does require a bit of suspension of disbelief to imagine a cop going that violently out of control? How much suspension of disbelief depends largely on your opinion of cops, of course. As they're adjusting to the possibility that Michael might have been killed, another cop car pulls up to finally inform Brackett that his daughter is one of the dead teens, and they drive away. Back at the hospital, Lori wakes up to some flirtation from Jimmy the ambulance driver, who does look convincingly young enough to flirt with high school students at least, and a medical report from head nurse Mrs. Alvis. One of the bones in her leg is fractured, but not broken, and she suffered a nasty slash on her arm. All in all, it could have been worse. Mrs. Alvis pulls Jimmy out of the room to give Lori a chance to rest. Back at Lindsay's house, the media has arrived, and there's a tiny blink-and-you'll-miss-it appearance of future SNL star Dana Carvey as an intern, and so news crews are present when Brackett sees his dead daughter being wheeled out on a stretcher. He goes to tell his wife the bad news, pausing just long enough to put Loomis on blast for his part in things, which is, again, entirely unfair, but he's obviously raw with grief, and puts Deputy Hunt, as played by Hunter Von Leer, in charge of the search. Hunt, to his credit, accepts the possibility that Michael might not have been the person who burned up in the cop car crash, and continues the search while they try to get dental records for the body. Karen, a nurse who is supposed to be on shift at the hospital, is running late as she leaves a party and goes to her car, which is parked in the center of town. She doesn't notice Michael, who's stalking the area, and who goes unnoticed by everyone, so presumably the news isn't circulating a description of the killer, and who overhears a news broadcast saying that survivor Lori Strode was taken to Haddonfield Memorial. Supposedly they're being lax about her security because they overheard that the killer was burned to death, although that isn't made clear in the final version. This film is just lousy with deleted scenes due to Carpenter's recutting and reshooting. Michael walks to the hospital, unnoticed by the security guard Mr. Garrett, as played by Cliff Emick, because he's busy watching Night of the Living Dead on TV. And yes, the continuity announcer sounds once again like Tommy Lee Wallace. We then get a little interaction among the staff. Bud is abrasive, antagonizing Nurse Janet and Nurse Karen with his dirty mouth and leering sexual attitude, and Jimmy is shocked by the murders and feeling very protective of Lori as a result. Apparently she goes to school with his younger brother, Ziggy. But it's Michael who sees Karen upbraided by Mrs. Alvis for her late arrival, and it's clear that he's already inside the hospital. Lori and Jimmy have a talk, and it's he who breaks the news that the man who attacked her earlier is Michael Myers, the infamous murderer from 1963. He's then chased out by Mrs. Alvis, whose comments on the frustrations men cause puts her down as my queer representation for the film, and when she asks Lori where they might be able to get hold of her parents, it's discovered that the phone lines are dead. Michael apparently shares Jason's instinctive ability to locate and destroy telephone lines. 
Garrett and Janet are tasked with finding and fixing the phone problem in a sequence that goes on perhaps a bit too long for my taste. It's clear from the moment Garrett goes off alone, leaving Janet to communicate with him through a walkie-talkie that she doesn't know how to operate and he doesn't tell her that he's going to be the next death in the movie. But we get a lot of wandering in the dark, and cats jumping out from hidden places, and doors being yanked open with nothing behind them before we get to the actual death, and it slips a bit past suspenseful and into tedious for my tastes, which is a problem with this movie in general, to be honest. It starts where Halloween left off, at an absolute peak of rising tension, but it wants to follow that dramatic structure of the original. So we get a lot of people puttering around in this first half when we're emotionally ready to jump right into the Michael action we got at the end of the first movie. Still, though, it's a pretty intense moment when Michael buries a claw hammer in Garrett's head, claw first, his seventh victim. The kills in this are very visceral, not just gory, but violent on a level you can genuinely feel. And I don't think Rosenthal gets enough credit for the way they're shot and staged because of Carpenter's role doing reshoots to add extra gore and violence. I think that some of this is Carpenter, sure, but some of it is also Rosenthal. Back at the coroner's office, Loomis, Hunt, and a dentist named Graham, played by Jeffrey Kramer, are unable to tell for sure whether the burned corpse is Michael. Hunt orders his men back out on the search, although a number of them have to be redirected to disperse an angry mob that's gathered outside the old Myers house. Honestly, I like the chemistry between Loomis and Hunt more than I do between Loomis and Brackett. They genuinely seem to respect each other, and Hunt at least is treating the triple murder with the seriousness it deserves. They share a cigarette together, and conspicuously, Loomis forgets to give back the lighter. He forgets because a couple of teens come up asking the cops to look into the whereabouts of Ben Tramer, Laurie's crush from the first film, who sounds like the right age and build to be the corpse in the mortuary, although this is not confirmed on screen, and they're also distracted by a report of a break-in at the old elementary school Michael used to attend. They get the dentist working on finding Ben's dental records and then rush to the scene to see what they can find. And over at the hospital, Bud and Karen decide to get a little nookie together in the therapy room. It's suggested that they have something of an on-again, off-again relationship, and that these kinds of trysts aren't infrequent for them when the hospital is as quiet as it is tonight. The therapy room has a hot tub, and they get naked together in it, which kids don't do. Not only is it inconsiderate to the next person who might use it, but the warm water might incubate germs. Pamela Shoup got an ear infection from the dunking she's about to take. While they're getting ready for their swim, Lori has a dream where she visits Michael at the mental institution and where her adoptive mother outright tells her not to call her mom. Which, if these are real memories, it clashes to an almost absurd degree with the continuity they later try to establish. Not only does it mean that Lori doesn't know she was adopted despite having a mom who mentions it to her on a regular basis, but it also means that Lori got in to see Michael despite his regular therapist not knowing who she is or what her connection to his patient is, something Lori also apparently didn't know either or later repressed. There are a lot of people who hate the whole Lori is Michael's sister thing on principle, and I'll get into that when we finally get into that big revelation, but I also really feel like it just isn't handled especially well. While Lori sleeps, Bud and Karen get naked in the hot tub, and sadly this scene now reminds me mostly of the fact that Pamela Shoup was pressured into appearing nude by her agent, who told her it was a big part and she needed to do whatever she took to get it, and by the crew who did not give her the clothes set she asked for. 
Again, there are a lot of stories like this, and as much as I appreciate the legitimate artistic reasons to include nudity in a film, and at least this is equal opportunity nudity, you see Leo Rossi's bare ass as he climbs out of the tub, I still think there are a lot of difficult conversations we as horror fans need to have about what we can reasonably expect cast and crew to go through for our entertainment. Thankfully, Deborah Hill did step in and prevent it from getting as bad as it could have been. Oh yes, and in the movie, Michael sneaks in and deliberately turns the temperature on the hot tub up to an unsafe degree, which is one of those things that feels like it should be unrealistic until you find out a little bit about plumbing and learn that the basic attitude toward unsafe water temperatures is, eh, they'll probably turn it down before they get hurt. And when Bud gets up to check the settings, Michael grips his throat to cut off his screams and strangles him to death behind a frosted glass window just feet away from Karen. He then comes up behind her and drowns her in the hot water. It's a kill that doesn't feel especially like anything we've seen in the previous movies. Michael just doesn't feel sadistic in the particular way we see here. But it is shocking, especially when you realize that he's holding his own hand in the same water that's scalding Karen's flesh and not reacting at all. Meanwhile, Loomis and Hunt investigate the break-in at the school and find the knife Michael stole jammed into the drawing of a happy little girl and the word Samhain written in blood on the blackboard. Although you can tell that Loomis has only ever seen it in books, as he pronounces it like it's spelled, Samhain, and not like it sounds. He also says it's Celtic for Lord of the Dead, which isn't true either. I suppose it's lucky we didn't hear him say that it was Celtic for Lord of the Dead. The exact etymology is unclear, but scholars believe it may derive from summer's end or simply a term for an assembly, and it's just the name for a standard harvest festival. But because a lot of harvest festivals fall at around the same time on the calendar, and usually involve the ceremonial slaughter of animals to provide the feast, it's become inextricably associated with the scary aspects of Halloween. The group is interrupted in their examinations by Marion Chambers, who shows up to tell Loomis that there's a marshal waiting to take him back to Smith's Grove. Dr. Rogers, the head of the institution, has pulled some strings to get the governor to yank Loomis out of the area because his presence makes it look like the official stance of Smith's Grove when it comes to mental health is shoot on sight, and they'd rather the cops deal with it. Loomis is unhappy, but reluctantly goes along with the decision as he's not really having any luck finding Michael in Haddonfield. Back at the hospital, Jimmy goes in to talk to Lori and finds her in a cataleptic state. Supposedly there's a deleted scene that explains this away as over-medication, the result of her waking up from her traumatic dream and being sedated out of her panic by Mrs. Alvis. There are actually a ton of deleted scenes in this movie due to Carpenter's recuts and reshoots, to the point where they were able to trim out all the gore for the broadcast TV versions and still fill out the runtime just from the footage they had already. But without that footage, we're left to assume that this is a psychosomatic condition, a response to the trauma of realizing she's actually Michael's sister, and she's apparently been repressing a ton of memories related to that. Jimmy goes to get Janet, who in turn goes to get Dr. Mixter, and finds him in his office with a hypodermic needle sticking out of his eye. So we're up to ten victims in the franchise, with Bud and Karen counting as eight and nine. And only seconds later we get number 11, as Cundy uses the spotlight trick again from the first movie to reveal Michael standing in the shadows behind Janet, and he uses a second needle to inject a massive air bubble into her temple, causing death by embolism. Jimmy realizes that something's wrong when Janet doesn't come back, and he leaves Jill with Lori while he goes to find out where everyone is. Incidentally, the lighting is very dark and shadowy for a hospital in these sequences, even for a nighttime hospital. Apparently, one of those deleted scenes involved Michael cutting the power, leaving them running only on the emergency generators. 
Jill's drawn away by a patient's buzzer, though, and Michael uses the opportunity to slip into Lori's room and stab her repeatedly. But all his scalpel hits is pillows. Lori's snapped out of her fugue and she's already on the run. At least, as much of a run as she can manage on a fractured leg. She goes to another room, trying to find a working phone, but they're all disconnected. And incidentally, it just now hit me how much inspiration the 2022 Scream movie draws from this sequence for its hospital scenes. That's a nice twist on the original being inspired by the first Halloween. Jill and Jimmy reconnoiter, and Jimmy tells Jill to drive to the sheriff to get help while he continues looking for Lori and literally anybody else in the suddenly suspiciously deserted hospital. He heads off and finally finds Mrs. Alvis, but she's lying on an operating table, an IV sticking out of her arm and a cable wrapped around her neck. She's leaked a literal pool of blood onto the floor around her, and when Jimmy turns to run and get help, he slips in it and cracks his head, knocking himself out. It almost feels like a purposeful statement on the difference in gore levels between this movie and the original. Jill goes to get help and finds out that all the cars in the parking lot have been sabotaged. Their tires have been slashed, and presumably Michael also did something to the fuel lines because her engine won't turn over. She runs back into the hospital just as Laurie emerges from her hiding place. Now, I know that a lot of people have complained that Laurie is a much more passive and terrified figure here, but I really feel like Jamie Lee Curtis sells the PTSD of knowing that the man you stabbed three times and someone else shot seven is still chasing you and always seems to be able to find you no matter where and how you hide. She keeps concealing herself only to realize that she's put herself into a position that offers her no information on where Michael might be, and then she gets up and needs to look around and tries to run away again, and it's all very affecting, honestly. And when she sees Jill get murdered by Michael, his 13th kill of the franchise, she freaks and runs. And again, it's a very visceral death here. Michael literally lifts her off her feet with the scalpel and the shot focuses on her shoes as they slip off and onto the floor. It's all incredibly intense and signals the third act chase has fully begun. Lori goes down into the basement and finds the body of Mr. Garrett in the boiler room. She doesn't have time to do more than scream before Michael shows up, managing to get away from him thanks to a conveniently placed interior window that gets her into a storage room. Michael is moving slower in this movie than in the last, which some have cited as a flaw, but which was a deliberate acting choice of Warlock's. He felt like as invulnerable as Michael seems to be, he'd still be a little bit slowed down by all those injuries. Lurie doubles back out of the storage room, reaching an elevator just as Michael catches up with her. The door closes less than a second before he reaches her, and she goes up to the ground floor and out to the parking lot. Jimmy's car is thankfully unlocked, and she hides down in the passenger side footwell, again hoping that she's finally found a hiding spot that Michael can't unnaturally intuit. Loomis and Chambers, meanwhile, are leaving town with the Marshal, and Chambers drops the big bombshell that will change the direction of the franchise. There was a sealed file that Loomis didn't know about, sealed by the Strode family when they adopted Lori at the age of four after Michael's parents died. Michael's and as you've probably already guessed, Lori's as well. Because she's Michael's sister, and all this time he's been waiting to come back to Haddonfield and finish what he started. Realizing the danger Lori's in, Loomis forces the marshal at gunpoint to head back to Haddonfield Memorial. Now, there are a lot of implications to unpack here, good and bad, but let's start with the basic idea itself. A lot of people loathe anything that makes Michael's motivations less opaque because the whole point of the original film is that he's pure evil and that his killing spree is predicated on nothing more than wanting to inflict violence on the random people who have crossed his path. 
anything that gives us insight into Michael's personality is seen by these original movie purists as a mistake. To them, Michael should always be like the shark in Jaws, a straightforward killing machine. But here's the thing. I don't often plug my own work on this podcast, but I have literally written the book on how to construct a continuing series. It's called Storytelling Engines from ATB Publishing, and it's all about the ways that writing a series is different from writing an individual story, because you need to give your writers opportunities for inspiration that will drive the next installment without the need for undue amounts of contrivance. And so I speak with some authority here when I say that you can't sustain the notion of Michael as a pure killing machine for very long without either A, giving him more tangible and understandable motivation that the writers can use as a jumping off point for the next story in the series, or B, giving him a supporting cast that drives the plot in the absence of Michael's motivation. Essentially, you either have to make Michael a more compelling figure to interact with, or you need to focus the sequels on someone else. It can't just be lining up a new cast of corpses for Michael to bump off, or people get bored. And yes, I know that the Jason movies have a new cast pretty much every single installment, but the Jason movies aren't beholden to the original the way that Halloween is. Sure, people like the first Friday the 13th, but they're not constantly demanding that every sequel match it in tone, style, and content. Friday the 13th is able to take big, wild swings, and they don't really care how contrived their stories are as long as they're interesting and memorable. But I digress. The point is, Halloween 2, 3, 4, etc. can't just be Michael finds another bunch of babysitters and stalks them. That would feel stale and derivative. It would wear out its welcome quickly after it was done so well in the original. It needs to have something that links the viewer emotionally back to the first movie. And since Laurie was the protagonist there, it was felt that she needed to be the protagonist in other installments as well. And that means coming up with some reason why Michael keeps coming after her with such relentless determination. Now, in retrospect, maybe they could have just said, oh, hey, he wants to finish what he started before he moves on to his next victim, and he never gives up and he never lets go, and audiences might have believed that. But at the time, Carpenter felt like something more was needed. And he was right in some ways. We'll get into this more in later installments, but there's a reason they kept bringing back Donald Pleasance for his sequels right up until his death. His obsession with Michael forms a narrative spine for the later installments and gives us a protagonist to get emotionally invested in once Jamie Lee Curtis decides not to do additional movies. It certainly wasn't an inherently bad idea to connect Michael to his victims as well, even though it is, by necessity, a shift from the original. That said, the story we're given doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Its biggest problem is that Loomis repeats in both movies, almost ad nauseum, that he was Michael's psychiatrist for 15 years, spending 7 years trying to understand him, and 8 years trying to keep him locked up, and he was an obsession, and there was nothing even remotely human left inside him, etc, etc, etc. Which means that under the new timeline they're trying to establish, he'd been Michael's psychiatrist for two years when Michael's parents died. Interestingly, they use the phrase, were killed at some point, implying perhaps that Michael somehow managed to arrange their deaths from inside the institution. And in that time, Loomis apparently never asked about additional siblings, never saw little toddler Lori visiting, never read a case file that would have mentioned the composition of the family. By the time he bothered to check, the Myers were already dead, Lori had already been adopted, and this vital information was hidden by court order and all the existing records sealed to prevent him from finding out. 
that might be believable if Lori was the one asking who her birth parents were, that information can be hidden pretty successfully because you don't know where to start looking. But Michael's parents could not have hidden the existence of a younger sibling from Sam Loomis. What they should have done, assuming they really wanted to stick with the long-lost sister angle, was make her Michael's half-sister, not adopted by the Strodes, but the progeny of an extramarital affair between Michael's father and Lori's mother. Yes, it would have been a bit Scream 96, but it would have resolved a lot of these really glaring plot holes. Anyway, getting back to the actual movie, although, yes, we'll continue to revisit this throughout the franchise, Laurie's hiding spot is discovered when a heavily concussed Jimmy stumbles out to his car and tries to start it. The engine won't turn over, though, much like with Jill's vehicle, and Jimmy passes out while trying to reassure Laurie and winds up falling face-first onto the horn, which of course gives away their hiding place. Suspecting that Jimmy will be safer away from her, and not having any way to rouse him or carry him even if she did want to take him with her, Lori gets out of the car, and her overstressed body pretty much just gives up and refuses to do anything further. She can't rise, she can't crawl, and when Loomis's car pulls up in the parking lot, she's too terrified even to scream. She can only whimper and watch as the trio walk into the death trap of a hospital without noticing her. Seeing them leave finally spurs her into action, though, and she heads for the entrance just as Michael, who's been outside this whole time, pursues her. She gets to the front door only to find it locked, but after a few moments of tension, Loomis lets her in seconds before Michael gets to her. But Michael simply walks straight through the glass door, probably one of the most iconic moments in the whole movie, and Loomis has to put another six bullets into him before he falls over. The marshal tries to approach the body, but Loomis tells him that he can still see Michael breathing. Michael then holds his breath to lure the marshal in and slits his throat when he kneels down to check vital signs. Loomis and Lori flee deeper into the hospital together while Chambers goes to radio the police from the marshal's car, and they finally flee into the operating room. Oddly, both the blood and Mrs. Elvis are gone. It might be a different room, but the exterior shots come from the same scene where Jimmy found her. They lock the door, and Loomis gives Lori a second pistol that he presumably took off the marshal just as Michael breaks in. Loomis's own gun is out of ammo, no seventh shot this time, and Michael stabs Loomis in the stomach before approaching Lori. She manages to hold him off for a moment by calling him by his name, but he recovers from the momentary surprise and she has to shoot him in the head. Even then, the bullets don't put him down, but they do blind him and he begins wildly swinging with the scalpel. Lori and a recovered Loomis take the opportunity to open up the ether and oxygen tanks, flooding the room with flammable gas, and Loomis tells Lori to run before he takes out the cigarette lighter he got from Hunt and blows up the whole room with himself and Michael inside it. Apparently, this explosion turned out to be stronger than expected. Jamie Lee Curtis's stumble and fall in this sequence was real. And then we get probably the other iconic shot of the movie. Michael stumbles out of the room, fully engulfed in flames, but still somehow coming at her in a moment I have to imagine inspired James Cameron to write the Terminator practically on the spot. But as Laurie stands there, unable even to move in terror, he finally falls forward, his body consumed by a fire that's enough to overcome even his seemingly indomitable will. And the next morning, Laurie is taken away to a different hospital in a new ambulance. My one tiny nitpick, they would have used the side door, which has interior stairs, rather than making her climb up in the big step in the back. I just got in a car accident this week. I actually do know. As the reporters talk about finding ten bodies inside, 
which tracks the Marshall and Loomis would have been kills 14 and 15 of the franchise and 9 and 10 of this film. That implies that Michael didn't kill any patients, or at least that if he did, those bodies haven't been found yet. We close on Laurie's traumatized face and a reprise of Mr. Sandman. Although there are deleted scenes where Jimmy turns out to be in the same ambulance, and we get at least a bit of a happy reunion between them. And at the time, that was intended as the end of the franchise. Michael's dead, Laurie's finally safe, and Carpenter and Hill can get away from the success that's come to overshadow their careers and do what they really want, turn the franchise into an anthology series about stories set on Halloween night. And we'll see how that goes in a couple episodes' time. For now, though, will I hang on to this movie? I think I will. It doesn't hurt that it's part of a double-disc set with part three, so I'm really keeping two movies for the space of one. They're both pretty bare-bones, but it's not like I don't have two whole books of reference to turn to if I want to get some behind-the-scenes information. So for now, at least, this one's staying on my shelf. And if you want to talk about storytelling engines, infamous retcons, or about anything else that came up on this podcast, you can find me on Twitter at at @halfhorror and on Tumblr and Letterboxd as HalfPriceHorror. My watch list on Letterboxd contains everything I plan to tackle in future episodes. If there's something you'd like to hear about, let me know. You can also support the show financially at patreon.com slash halfpricehorror, and you can rate and review me on Apple Podcasts and anywhere else this podcast is found. And next time on Half Price Horror... Okay, folks, I have teased it long enough. Here we go. Directed by John Carpenter, starring Kurt Russell, undisputed classic of 80s sci-fi horror, 1982's masterpiece, the... Oh. Oops. Sorry, um, this isn't 1982's The Thing. This is 1989's direct-to-video film, Things. Which is, you know, also a movie. Oh, boy. See you then?